if you'll open your Bibles to Psalm 32. I thought it would be helpful for all of us as Metro Crest Presbyterian Church to, to uh, look at the subject of sin and repentance. And of all the passages in Scripture to which we could go, I think this is probably one of the best. This is a psalm of repentance. One of the penitential psalms, there are seven of them in, in the uh, book of Psalms. And, uh, but I think that this is, is a psalm that, that really lends itself to what we need to hear this morning. So if we will, let us all stand together as we listen to God's holy and precious and infallible word. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts, O Lord, be uh, received by your, you and be gracious in your sight, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The psalm begins with a verse that probably summarizes not only the psalm, but all the scriptures and all the gospel that you could envision. Let me explain. We read verse 1 and 2. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. It's a declaration of the blessedness of those who receive God's total and complete forgiveness. It's a deep and heartfelt expression of joy. When I say deep, what I mean is that almost every word is filled with nuance and significance that, that we learn as we look at it uh, together. Uh, you remember David. Of all the, the people in the Bible, David probably committed some of the worst sins of all. He, he began 
Uh, it began with David in the Old Testament by, by uh, Samuel through, uh, th by Samuel stating about God, from God, that, he, that David was a man after God's own, own heart. And through the whole process of what happened, the, the killing of Goliath, uh, being uh, saved from, from uh, uh, forgive me, uh, I'm not thinking very well, be, being saved through, uh, from Saul and going on to become king and coming up to the point in his kingdom when, when he was uh, uh, reigning, then he came to a point in his life where apparently he lost focus and he lost his concern about what he was doing for God. And, and he, he committed the sins that we know. Now look at the specific Hebrew terms used for sin and forgiveness in this particular passage. And we're looking at them based upon Kyle and Dietrich, two Old Testament Hebrew scholars, not myself, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. Uh, I, uh, but rather, th these terms are nuanced, and I want to interpret them for you through them. Transgression. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Transgression means a breaking away or tearing away from God, a malicious defiance, a casting away of all restraints. That defines David to a T. That's exactly what he had done when he committed adultery, killed Uriah the tit Hittite, when he, when he coveted uh, his, uh, Uriah's wife. And then you look at the word forgiven. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Forgiven means a lifting up, a taking away, so that here this breaking apart from, from God this tearing apart from him, this malicious idea is simply lifted and taken away from David, whose sin is, co is covered. Sin is a deviation from the way in which you ought to walk, a missing of the mark. But whose sin is covered, that means the covering has to do with covering this deviation dismissing uh, the mark and going your own way, covering it from the eyes of God so that he no longer sees it. Who's an, and blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Iniquity means a perversion, a distortion, a misdeed, a deliberate going away from God's will. And it says here, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Impute means to number and to reckon so that you have it in a situation where you're judged by it. But here, that perversion is not reckoned here. And in whose spirit is no deceit, no guile. Uh, it doesn't hide or deny it. It tells it as it is. Now these three words for sin are not categories of sin, but are all together stressing as well as the psalmist can the egregious nature of sin. And the same is true for the three different words for forgiveness. 
they are all together seeking to stress the gracious nature of God's forgiveness. And so the psalmist is addressing both sin and forgiveness comprehensively. David blew away three of the major commandments of, of ten commandments of God. Number six, thou shalt not kill. Number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. And number ten, thou shalt not commit, thou, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's, your neighbor's wife. But all of these sins are lifted up. They're covered. And they're not imputed. They're not reckoned according to his uh, to judgment by a gracious God who so lifted them up from David. And so David can say, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And what does it mean when he says how blessed uh, is the one? You know, we have a, uh, we use the word blessed in a variety of ways which falls far short of what it means really in Scripture. You say, God bless you. What do we mean by that? We, we talk about when we, we have a, a prayer in, in, uh, before dinner uh, that it's a blessing. Or we think of how God has blessed us and that's largely doing it with material things. We, we translate Matthew chapter 5, how, how blessed are the poor in heart, for, for they shall see God. We bless that, how happy is, are those who do that. That's not a good translation. Uh, blessed has a much deeper uh, definition than that when you think of it this way. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul said, wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we might be holy and blameless before him, in love having pre-encircled us unto himself for adoption of sons, according to the to the gracious intention of his will, to the, to the praise of the glory of his grace in which he graced us in the beloved and in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. That's what blessing is all about. Or if you go according to what R.C. Sproul uh, like to, to talk about, and that is the Hebrew blessing in Numbers chapter 6, the Old Testament blessing, he says that this expresses the zenith of, of uh, blessing, uh, in Scripture, where you have the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. May the Lord bless you. These are all parallel statements. Bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. You remember that God does not look upon sin. And man cannot look upon God because of his sinful nature. So may the Lord, uh, it says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. This is the zenith of blessing. 
And so when, when he writes this first verse, David out of his own heart and out of his own experiences said, how blessed is he whose transgression, who, whose transgression that breaking away and tearing away from God uh, is forgiven or lifted up and taken away, whose sin, that deviation from the mark, is covered so that God will not be able to see it, whose, uh, how blessed is the man who, to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and iniquity uh, being the perversion or distortion, and it's not imputed to him, it's not reckoned to him as righteousness, in whose spirit there is no deceit, how blessed that God can look upon his youth uh, from above and see you and keep you and give you his grace and his peace. How blessed is that man and woman. <laughs> All who are his who experience this, this peace and this forgiveness of sin. That's where this psalm begins. And then David can say, uh, can go on to, to talk about, uh, to give his testimony uh, in, as it follows here. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Now, we're not sure whether he is simply speaking figuratively or, or whether he's talking about physical illness. It says here, when I kept silent about my sin, my body, literally my bones, wasted away. In verse 4, at the end, it says, my vitality or my juices were drained away as with the heat of summer, the drought of summer. And some think that... that uh, he was not only spiritually, but also uh, uh, physically uh, touched with all of this because of the words he uses. But notice the words in the middle, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. So God had something to do with it. God pursues his own. Charles Spurgeon said, God does not permit his children to sin successfully. <laughs> Proverbs 28.13, which Solomon wrote, said, He who covers his sins shall not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Approximately a year went by when David was in this condition. You know, people have a hard time confessing their sin. They're especially reluctant to confess sin publicly. But David had no choice. Nathan exposed him and what he did. And so it was out front center. I had a discussion with a friend a week or so ago about the fact that, that he would go to confession before a priest once a year. And he noted, he, he noted about that, how hard it was for him to confess sins to this priest. I was thinking that once a year you should be going more often. <laughs> I didn't tell him that. 
But um, the, the difficulty of con confessing sins, I've used this text in the past on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. You're familiar with Sanctity of Human Life Sunday on, on or near January the 22nd when you had a Roe versus Wade uh, back, back when. Women who have had an abortion have a difficult time confessing that and acknowledging what they have done. Of course, whenever you, you uh, preach about that or teach about that, you always stress the forgiveness of God that he has. Think of all that David did and the forgiveness that he received. Then think uh, of, of God. Realize that God does forgive sin for those who confess it. In fact, when uh, in First Presbyterian Church, Augusta, uh, I had one of the elders' wives came up to me one day and she said, I would like for us to be able to, to let women in our congregation know that there are a group of us who, who meet together who have had abortions. And this needs to be private. Would you please announce it and help us uh, help direct women in our direction? This was an elder's wife who had had an abortion, but they wanted it to be private. They wanted to be quiet, so that, but that they themselves would come together and realize what had happened uh, to them uh, as, a, as a result of, of all of this. People have a hard time confessing. Sometimes I wonder whether God did not allow David to do everything that he did so that we could today look back and realize the extensive way in which God forgives his forgiving love. After he talks about the despair of those who deny their sin, he goes on to talk about the relief of those who confess their sin. I acknowledge my sin to you, my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You'll notice that all three words for sin that were in verse 1 are repeated here in his confession. And his iniquity he did not hide. There was no deceit. There was no guile. Simultaneously with confession came forgiveness, the lifting up uh, of that sin and taking away. I'd like to mention two things in this regard that, that I think are important. What is confession? Confession does not mean merely admitting that you've made a mistake or done something wrong. Confession is coming before a holy and righteous God Realizing the reality of our sin and the heinousness and repulsive nature of this sin is to a holy God. Being specific and genuine in repentance about that sin. It's, it's using words such as David used in Psalm 51 where he says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, Blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression, my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when thou dost judge. Notice that David doesn't hold back anything. Actually, the three terms that are used here in verse 1 and in verse uh, 4 or 5 are also used in what I just read with him. He uses the same terms. He pours out his soul to God. That is what confession is. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. I'm reminded again of the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. Some of you might not be aware of this. Uh, some of you may. But in the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, a, when a baby is born and a baby is baptized, that baptism gives that baby justification. And so that child is justified as he grows up until he commits a mortal sin. When he commits what is called a mortal sin, he loses his justification. And then when he loses his justification, he has four things to do. He has to confess what he has done. He has to show contrition for what he has done. Then before the priest, the priest says, te absolvo, I absolve you. The priest absolves, I absolve you. And then the priest gives him certain things to do for satisfaction, to get back into a right relationship and to be justified again in a justified situation. You'll notice when we look at David, when David confessed his sins, he was immediately, directly given forgiveness by God because we believe that the Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ is our high priest. And one of the greatest doctrines of the Reformation was the priesthood of all believers, that we can go directly to God through our Lord Jesus Christ and confess our sin to him and we will be forgiven. 1 John 1.9 says, If you confess your sins, he is able and just to forgive, us your, give, forgive you your sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Doesn't mean there won't be consequences. There were grave consequences for David. Because of this, because he killed Uriah, the sword never left his house. His house was divided. Absalom, you remember, sought to take over and died in the process. There are consequences to things that happen like that. But that does not take away. Then once David testifies to the the despair that he had when he had not confessed and then the confession of faith and the, the guilt that came, uh, came off uh, due to that confession of faith and that he was forgiven of his sins. Then he makes a strong appeal here in verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you when a time when, in which you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. According to our Kyle and Delich. Flood of great waters 
really is referring uh, to divine judgment. And so what he's saying is, let everyone who is godly, that is, those who are faithful to God, those who are devoted to God, those who would, would know that, that they've sinned, let them go and pray and beseech God. And then the very next thing he says in the verse is, you, God, are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. The only place we can go is to God. We bring our prayer to God. We bring ourselves to God. We confess our sin to God. He forgives. And He is our hiding place. And as a result, He preserves. He surrounds me with songs of deliverance. This is the consequence of pursuing this path. But then there seems to be an interruption in what's happening in verses 8 and 9. Because it reads, I will instruct you in the way you will go. And, the, and it sounds as though God is the one doing the instructing, which indeed he is. David is in an intimate way writing as though God was speaking. Because this is what God has said before. He's just repeating what God has already said. And God would be saying this, I will instruct you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as a horse or a mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle and hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. You know, the aim of all forgiveness is to restore a person into a right relationship with God. But God doesn't want it to stop there. It's one thing to, to forgive the sin and to restore the right relationship with God, but he wants to continue the right relationship with God. And in order to do that, he instructs them in the way in which uh, they ought to go. I will instruct you in the way which you should go, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. God continues to look upon him. While, while he looked upon him while he was sinning, he will also look upon him also from this time uh, forward. I want to turn to uh, Psalm 25, 4 to talk about this word way. Way is another way of talking about the commandments. There are a number of terms that come together that you might not have realized come together, when, especially in the Psalms and in the prophets, uh, when they speak about the way, when they talk about paths, when they talk about, about direction. Are you uh, aware that the word Torah, which is Hebrew, which is translated law in the Bible, means instruction? We often think of it in legal terms because we have a, our Scottish roots that go back to the legal analysis of things. But it actually means instruction. It means direction, guidance. So that when you're reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you're looking at the law of God, it is God's instruction in the way that we should go. That's what it's about. 
In verse 4 of verse 25, of chapter 25, make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. For thee I wait all the day. All the day, remember, O Lord, thy compassion and thy loving kindness. All these terms always come together as they're talking about this. Verse 9, no, verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice. He teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. That sums up all that there is to know about his way, his law, his loving kindness, his truth, his joy, all that he has to offer. Don't be like the horse or donkey that, has, that you have to have a bridle on to obey. The mule especially is known for to be abusive, to be, uh, to be obtuse. Faith must be followed by obedience. This is too important for us to act like a mule. Our affections are divided. On the one hand, we have affections for God. Those that love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind. On the other hand, we have affections for the world. But we're told, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life are not of the Father, but are of the world. And so we have affections going this way, we have affections going that way. And when we have affections going the way toward the world, and we catch ourselves with these affections uh, overriding the affections that we should be having for God, then we need to immediately, as a godly, pray to God and come to Him and confess our sin as it ought to be confessed in a genuine, genuine way and look to God so that we will receive songs of deliverance and, and receive uh, His care and His presence and His protection and His love. That's what this psalm is all about. And you'll notice how it concludes. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness, shall surround him. It all ends up in looking at the two ways of life. One way does not bode well. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. The other way ends quite well. He who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness, shall surround him. There are two ways. And then the results with the latter. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you who are upright in, in heart. We are a people, a congregation, who ought to demonstrate and show the joy that we have because of the gospel of the grace and love and forgiveness of God and our fellowship with God 
it all should be exemplified by be glad in the Lord, rejoice you righteous ones, shout for joy all you that are upright in heart. Joy is the result of a heartfelt prayer of confession, the discovery of the wonder of forgiveness, the blessedness of God's presence which brings peace and grace and God looking upon us and his counsel in the way we ought to go, the way that leads to life.